Uh, you can agree with anybody on 80% of the things. And if you're talking about jobs, economic well-being, mobility, and, and environmental protection, this industry can do that, particularly the service companies. Innovation, technology, uh, thinking kind of outside the box, your companies are already doing that. You're already providing the equipment for, I'll call it the energy futures, right? The, the, the renewables, the things that a potential Biden administration is going to look at. But sharing that information, knowing that you're part of the solution, you're not the cause, you're part of the solution. I think that's important and that, that's going to be, that'll be necessary. The Energy and Transition podcast is the first of its kind, exploring the critical role of oil and gas in energy transition. Energy transition is not transition away from hydrocarbons. It's a collaborative effort towards a lower carbon future. And these are the stories of the companies and people that are actively reducing emissions and actually getting us there. Leaders from all sectors will discuss industry trends and topics like emerging technologies, global energy demand, access to capital markets, ESG, and workforce innovation. This podcast is sponsored by PISA, the Petroleum Equipment and Services Association, Locked In Companies, and Galtway Marketing. Leslie Beyer, welcome back to the Energy and Transition Podcast. We are recording today in the Fletcha Azul Tequila Studio in Houston. I've got a co-host today, very happy um, to be doing this as a team. Tim Tarpley, Vice President, Government Affairs at PISA, um, will share the interviewer role with me today as we visit with Bob Moran who is Senior Managing Director at FTI Consulting. Welcome, Bob. Thank you, Leslie. Wonderful to be here. Tim, good to see you. And it's nice to be in Houston, out of, out of D.C. for a little bit. I'm sure it is. Yeah. So this is a special edition podcast, special election edition. Um, we were kind of sitting around and talking about who is the smartest person that knows exactly what's going to happen on the election that's in the middle of all the weeds in D.C. that can come tell us. And you and chose all of the our wrong listeners. person. You chose the wrong person. <laughs> no, we know we did. So, Bob, you and I have known each other for at least 10 years. Um, when you were at Halliburton, you were vice president, government and external affairs there for about 12 years. I'll never forget the first time we met. I was, you know, escorted up to your office overlooking the White House lawn and ushered into your large conference room. And we walk in and sit down and I start telling you, you know, all the things we're going to be doing for you. And, and your response was, listen, I need to know how you're going to do twice as much for me for half the price. Well, that was the Halliburton way. That was the, <laughs> that was a, that's the old field yeah, services way, a, yeah, right? It is. And I don't remember what I said, but I must have said the right you words. You said the right I thing. I got your money. You that's said the for right sure. thing. You did. <laughs> And, and and again, from the NAM days to your days there and to PISA, uh, the Petroleum Equipment Services still is my number one trade association. You guys do great work. I'm seeing everything that you're doing on the web, all your social media, everything you're doing in STEM education, Thank diversity you. and inclusion. I applaud you. I think the industry should, too. Well, the great work you guys are that doing. That is so kind of you to say. And it means a lot coming from you because you are truly the one of the only and certainly the one that kind of paved the way in D.C. 
the full-time lobbyist for oil field services. For a long time, Halliburton was the only company that really had that flag flying in D.C. And you were the guy that all the operators went to on issues that they cared about, that they wanted the service providers to be behind. You were on the PISA board. You were the chair of our policy committee. And I honestly, in, in my long history of government affairs, I don't know anyone who's more knowledgeable on oil and gas and just the way that the regulatory and legislative policies at the federal and state level impact our industry. Well, again, I've got a lot of scars from those days. <laughs> but uh, but again, in the PISA and the leadership within PISA, and the board and and the members there, talent and and I, I, throughout my entire career, I just listen and learn, and that's what's. If I keep my mouth shut long enough, which <laughs> usually does me well, I listen and learn some great things from some great people. And again, through my entire career, that's what's been. It's been the mentors, the guides, the lead, the bosses, the leadership, uh, the staff too. I've been lucky uh, and just working with some phenomenal people, including both of you. Well, you're sweet to say that. I know every time I walk into a room on Capitol Hill and we're up at the Capitol, we're visiting with members of Congress, you're just walking the halls and people will stop. And like, oh, hey, that's Bob Moran. Hey, Bob, how's it going? You got to be a friend of Bob's in D.C. And you started, I know, at NOIA and API. You understand the trade association world. Um, and then all your your tenure at Halliburton, and then now you're at FTI, and you're overseeing in the Strategic Communications Office a lot of regulatory legislative policy. Can you tell us a little bit yeah, about that? Sure. And, and by way of background, for FTI, it's a global business advisory firm. And so we're in 84 countries. We've got 5,800 people around the globe. But we work within and we help our clients deal with manage change, manage risk deal with conflicts, and then positioning and messaging. And one thing that we're seeing is, or where kind of we reside, is that nexus between commercial markets, capital markets, arbitration, courts, litigation, and the ever-present world of politics. And so that's where FTI is. What I do is I manage and our government affairs practice. I co-chair it. Uh, Bud Kramer, a, a, a former member of Congress from Alabama, and I co-chair our government affairs practice. Well, those are all the things that we really work to focus on on this podcast, particularly this energy and transition. And you know it's new. You're our fourth guest, um, our first special edition guest. So there you go. Um, but we do try to touch on that intersection, everything in capital markets, you know, how, how that affects us, um, certainly policy and, and then the industry in general. So, um, Tim, you want to hop in and, and we'll kind of get started on some of our initial questions. I know the let the me just Let me button. just add one thing, yeah. though, too, on this meeting. And thank you again. This this will be. Bob Moran's views. I'm not speaking on behalf of FTI <laughs> because I always fear if they hear me say something, then that'll be it. And uh, and then I really have to retire. So uh, I just wanted to, to let you guys know that. That was your verbal disclaimer yeah, that's that right. you know, we don't see on yeah, the, the lawyers on the give slide. me a couple pages. Exactly. I just want you to know. No, we'd much rather hear unvarnished Bob Moran <laughs> than anything else. And I, I know our listeners would, that's for sure. And um, so we'll go ahead and get started. Tim, what was, you know, kind of the top things on your mind? Great. Well, well, welcome, Bob. Good, good to see you down here in Houston, down in God's country. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm going to kind of kick it off with with a million dollar question that it's on everybody's mind. Where do you think we are in the election right now for president? Where, where do you see the momentum going, and and where where do you see things going the next couple of weeks? Good question. 
um, and it's one that everybody's asking. But if if you look at trends, Biden has held a very stable seven to nine point lead across the country in a lot of the battleground states. That hasn't changed. Trump's favorability or unfavorability hasn't changed at all since his inaugural. So you've got those in place, right? And seven to nine points is is pretty is pretty strong for Biden. You've got uh, another problem, which is the big issues for the American voters are COVID. What are you going to deal? How are you going to deal with it? Economic recovery is another one, and then trust in the government and how it's functioning. Trump is carrying COVID, and much to the angst of many American voters about how his process was going and and what he and the administration did or didn't do. So what you have, and you have a united uh, Democratic Party against Trump. It's a referendum vote. And what they're, gonna, what they're saying is Trump is bad for this, he's bad for that. And, and among all of the challenges that we're facing, COVID, uh, racial injustice, um, you name it, there's the, the economic down, downward spiral, uh, what we're doing with uh, increased deficits. There's so much going on that the American voters looking for something and Biden's offering a, rep, uh, a referendum on Trump. Trump is trying to make this a choice election. He's trying to say, hey, this is part of the swamp. But a lot of people are saying, well, you've been here for four years now, too, which was one of his statements in 2016. Trump is also saying, hey, uh, Kamala Harris is only a heartbeat away from the presidency and her positions are very far left. So you're seeing comments about socialism and communism. Are they resonating? Again, I don't know. And I'm not seeing any change in polls. However, Remember in 2016, right? In 2016, everybody thought it was going to be um, Hillary's, and it wasn't. And, and Trump was able to eke that out, but he was eking that out on messages, immigration, throw her in jail, right? And and he had messages. Now you're not seeing that really. It's a scattered Twitter storm in a lot of cases. I was going to say I've noticed too that Biden's polling higher than Clinton was in some cases with a larger spread than like 12 to 14 points in in the 2016 election. So it seems like he's really doing much better than she was at this time. You've, you've got this, this, again, a cohesive democratic unity and the party party. And they're going out and registering voters. And that is a phenomenal. I mean, we're having more registration than ever before. The turnout could be enormous. I mean, e- even back in the D.C., Virginia area, uh, the lines for early voting are, are stretching a long oh, way. Here even in Texas, too. Yeah. Even with social distancing, it's there's a there's a lot. So, I mean, you're, you're seeing this this enthusiasm by the American public to vote. And and also we're talking about mail in ballots, which is something completely new and put that into the gumbo, too, to mix this around. So. Well, and if you and speaking of comparing 2016 to now, um, it, it appears that there are a lot less undecided voters right, this time around. Folks have made up their mind on the on the president and on 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 Biden. Um, do you think there's still a big enough percentage out there of, of undecideds to really sway anything? Is the next debate going to matter? And uh, um, I think there's 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 always there's always another October surprise, right? We uh, maybe that was 
Trump catching COVID. Trump catching COVID uh, yeah, was yeah, the biggest was, was October big, surprise big, yeah, ever. They, well, we kind of you could kind of guess yeah. something was going to happen, yeah. but um, but I do think uh, the other uh, big challenge that could be, I, I mean, you talked about undecideds. I saw an interesting poll, and and I, I got my notes, and I can't remember where it came from, but I'll let you know. And it was a phone poll on Republican, Independents, and Democrats, those that were hesitant to share information over the poll. So, I mean, you'd always hear about uh, a closet Republican voters or whatever. And the numbers, if I recall this correctly, the numbers were about 12% of the Republicans were saying that. Basically, about five or six percent of the Democrats were saying they're hesitant to talk and share publicly, but the independents were at eleven percent. So there, there is an avenue for Trump to win. He could still lose the general by three or four, maybe five million, and he could still win this election. Uh, you just need two hundred and seventy, and if you play the calculus correct, there's a chance he could do it. The problem is. The six states that he won, and um, those now you're seeing Biden lead by seven to nine points. That's why I think it'll be interesting. And and again, getting to maybe you're asking, but uh, getting to will we know by election night? Maybe not. You know, but I don't think we're going to wait until January in a Supreme Court case anymore. I don't. I don't think that. I don't is either. Happen. Well, yeah. you mentioned two things that I tie together in my mind. First, the mail-in ballots. Let's talk about that and what impact, you know, you think that has and how that ties specifically to Florida. So I know that, you know, the spread is so tight in the battleground states. I know how narrowly the president won those, but it looks like it's just all coming down to Florida. Biden's spread seems to be, you know, getting a little bit bigger there, but I know they have, they're already counting their mail-in ballots. And I've heard that those will all be counted by at least two days after. And as goes Florida, you know, I think conventional wisdom at this point is like, so goes the election. And I'm with you. I'm with you. And because I think in Florida, the mail-in ballots have to be in by election day. So it'll be much quicker. There won't be any hanging chads. There won't be any of that stuff that we've seen from way back when. you know that I sat there and guarded (laughs) a ballot box in Florida. Yeah. <laughs> Those many yeah. years ago, yeah. and uh, let's don't go through another hanging chat, pregnant chat. But you, but you're seeing the town halls. You're seeing spending the, from both political parties is enormous in Florida, and trying to find because that the, that number you're right was tight. It was like one one point two percent or something like that that Trump won by. And are you going to be able to get? Uh, the the Latin American vote? Are you going to be able to get, you know, I, I mean, are you going to be able to get Miami? Are you going to be able to get the big cities? And that that could be a struggle. And again, it comes down to choice versus referendum, right? And uh, right now, I'd pr- I, I, I would give, and I think most of the polls are doing this too, the ones I listen and learn from are giving, are giving you know, the nod to, to Biden. But with the upcoming uh, um, presidential debate, there always could be a Biden moment that get, you know, those people that haven't done their mail-in ballot yet that are waiting could say, hmm, Uncle Joe said this or Uncle Joe said that. So, I mean, you never know. Uh, you never know. And there, and there may be enough undecideds in Florida, in some of these other battleground states to really, to change it. 
Um, do do you think the president? Uh, I mean, he general consensus is that first debate did not go his his way. Do you think the president's going to reboot and come out strong in that in that second debate and could have a chance to uh, to pull something like that off? He he. I mean, he's he's really got to. You had that debate problem, then you had COVID. Then, I mean, and, and meanwhile, the attacks are still going, even though they were polite, given he and the first lady um, were suffering from that. And it's still, it's all COVID. The attention is all on COVID. And the attention is all on, there are, are, there are families that lost loved ones in Florida that are going to be concerned about this. And I do think when you take the 200,000 plus people that have died in this country, that is going to be a heavy, um, uh, you know, it's the albatross that he's going to have to bear. You know. Especially with that older population in Florida. Yeah. I mean, that's why it matters. Exactly. Well, Bob, let's switch gears to the Senate. Um, as you know, the Republicans are playing more defense than the Democrats are on Senate seats. How do you see the Senate going at this point? Normally, the top of the ticket determines what's going to happen at the Senate level. And I'm, a, I'm a, uh, worried about that because there are some great, great candidates and I'm, uh, uh, there are some good challengers, too. But um, a couple of them. Cory Gardner um, in Colorado, a Trump, uh, I'm sorry, a, um, a Hillary state. He's going to have a tough one, just given Colorado is blue and getting bluer. Um, and Hickenlooper has got name recognition. He's coming in there. That's going to be tough. I'm, I'm never counting Cory out because uh, the guy runs a marvelous campaign and um, I just think the world of him. But that could be a, that could be a loss um, as we talk about getting to four. Um, Martha McSally in Arizona is also facing a rough time. Again, that was a Trump state, but it's turning and edging blue, given again that 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 kind of that baseline uh, Biden level. And so I think that's going to be another tough one. And then we've got challenges in Georgia. Uh, Purdue has got a rough, rough race. And again, th there's a ton of money going in against these um, Danes in Montana. Uh, up against uh, Governor Bullock is having a rough, uh, I mean, that's going to be a rough race too. And you won't, you won't know until the end of it. Lindsey Graham. Yeah. Lindsey, yeah, Lindsey Graham again with, and that's interesting too, because again, right now he's got the gavel on the Supreme Court nomination. Will that energize the evangelical voters within his state to come out and say, hey, Lindsey, we want you? Or the money that's coming in from the party and from others that's coming into um, coming into his opponent could be a problem. And actually, I saw that the 36 hours after Trump nominated um, or, or nominated uh, Barrett, that the Act Blue, the Democrat Democratic um, uh, money machine generated over $100 million in 36 wow. hours. In 36 hours. In 36 hours. And with all of this money going, and again, Biden and everybody wants to make, we, we need to deal with campaign finance. But with all of this money going, you're going to have a lot of freshman members, either in the Senate or the House, that got pockets full of money. Um, so that also changes the dynamic too. So uh, but I, I, right now, if you had to, and again, I'm, I'm from the experts that I read and see that this is their job to look at polls and things, it certainly sounds like there is a chance that Schumer could have, you know, the leadership role. Um, and with that, there's a series of other 
trials and travails that industry may face and or the business community face. I, I definitely want to talk about those, how you see that potentially playing out. Tim was mentioning something today at lunch at Super Chicken. We were glad to get over there. They only got a few days left. Give them a good old plug. But, you know, you were mentioning something interesting about Cornyn in Texas and how his polling looks different than the president's. Well, we, we as we sit here in Texas, um, you know, Senator Cornyn looks like he's got about an eight, eight or nine point lead, which is which is comfortable. Um, the thing that's interesting about Texas is we have two million new voters in the state since 2016. So that's those are those are new registered voters. We don't know quite how they're going to break. Uh, but what an interesting dynamic what we've seen is is like Senator Cornyn is actually out polling the president by about seven or seven points in, in Texas. So there's a lot of question about how that's going to affect the down ballot. Senate, speaking of Senator Cornyn, he he, in fact, has has been been making the pitch that, hey, we, we need to bring more money into Texas. The state may potentially be in play uh, this term. What, what do you think about that? Is that is that is there truth to that? Well, I'll believe anything Senator Cornyn says. Um, and um I, again, it's, I've always wondered about Texas, about the beacon of the Republican, you know, focus um, and strength. But you're looking at it. Uh, there are areas of it that are not so much that anymore. And it's changing. Your demographics are changing. I don't know if it's the moderate Californians coming here that are changing it for you. But um, I, I, I do think this this is one. This election, just like 2016, was a gut check election for the Democrats. What are we doing? Uh, what are we doing wrong? I think the Republicans um, right now, you've got a lot of Republican senators that are say, are distancing themselves from Trump on maybe it's a stimulus package, maybe whatever, but they're kind of distancing themselves, which is a different feel. I mean, it's not, you know, it's not jumping off the Titanic at any means, but there's a different feel for that. Um, and I do think the Republicans are need, will need to look, whether it's Trump 2.0, which it may be, or if it's Biden 1, uh, the Republicans are going to need to look at where's our party? Where's it going? Um, what are we doing about diversity within the party, right? Um, they, they, is it diverse yet? It's getting there, but it's not. And what are they doing on outreaching to certain areas that they said they were going to touch base with the Hispanic community? Obviously, you know, Trump distanced the Republicans from them in 2016. Um, you've got other uh, other elements too, the African-American community, the, the Vietnamese community. There are a lot of great opportunities for the Republican Party, but it's going to there, there may be a need for a change. Um, by it. I've seen and we didn't even talk about this. I, I, you and I haven't. Um, but. You know, some of my former colleagues have, you know, started up this the Lincoln Project yeah. in in an effort to shake up the party and, uh, you know, take it back to the party of Lincoln. And you see that fracturing. Uh, there's a 43 for Biden, you know, amongst oh, yeah. some of my former colleagues as well. It's just so interesting. I don't see that fraction. You know, I don't see the Democratic Party looking like Yet. that. Yet. Okay. Because right now, every Democrat is focused on ousting Trump, right? Putting Biden in there to erase and redo everything President Trump has done. The challenge is going to be, can Biden maintain and, uh, uh, and embrace um, and enfold the far left, the progressives, the AOCs, the Bernies, the Elizabeth Warrens, 
that um, and and also the younger members like AOC that said, I'm sick around, of, I'm sick and tired of waiting. I want action now. Will Biden be able to capture all of that without having the problem that I talked about with choice, which would be the public going, we're going pretty far left. How is that impacting my business? How is that impacting my future, my children's future? You know, I think that some of those questions will, will come to play. But there's some things Biden can do on that. And I think when you look at the Biden campaign policies, they resonate with the entire party. Progressives can find things they love. The moderates can find things that they love. And I think when he's looking, should this happen, should he win, he'll look to place qualified, experienced practitioners at the cabinet level and ones that can also manage federal bureaucracy, but then also can sell his policies to the public because that's going to have to continue during the time of COVID. But I do think what Biden may choose to do and his, his handlers is bring some of those progressives in to second and third tier levels within these agencies so they get experience in government and the government policy. Because, I mean, and, and Democratic colleagues will yell at me, but I don't think Obama really did a lot of good about building bench strength for their for their that is such an interesting point on bench strength i mean and a lot of that has to do with the transition team i know i mean i like to think that the bush 43 that that was an amazing transition team we got everybody slotted in real fast there were there are still slots that were never filled um in the current administration and people talk about how fast a potential biden administration transition team would jam that in. And I didn't think about the strength of the bench. Yeah, you, no, you're right. Because 47 years or plus in D.C., knowing how it works and having that core group around them. And you're, and, and you're right. Trump, there was a struggle on personnel and there was a, in transition, there was a New York team and there was a D.C. team and the two were at odds often. And, but you're right. Um, I think with Biden, you're going to see You'll see things the way in my long career in D.C., you'll see the way things are run. Um, and but I do think he could build bench strength and embrace and, and bring in the progressives into his administration. He'll, he'll need to do that. Otherwise, they'll be on the outside and they'll start throwing rocks after the honeymoon is over. Well, Bob, Bob this is a question that obviously important to our industry. We, we talked about Biden trying to t trying to hold off the progressive wing of, of his party. You know, certainly he picked Harris, which was probably meant to, to do a bit of that. Is, do you think he's going to have to make some concessions to the progressive ring with, uh, you know, the secretary of EPA interior? Is he going to have to put some progressives in there? And obviously that could affect could affect our industry quite a bit. Yeah. And, it, and again, I still think the and I'll call them the, the ultra progressives and the far, far left. A couple of things that are going on right now. Any name that's being circulated within or amongst the campaign about potential at EPA or Interior or Energy, I'll call it the um, the the progressives are doing a swift boat campaign and cutting everybody off at the knees that has any association with business, any any touch of energy, particularly the fossil uh, fossil industry. So I think you're seeing that they just want true, it, this sounds, it doesn't sound right, but true believers there. Um, but I do think, 
again, Tim, I think you'll see second and third tier, still important positions um, in bureaus and departments or what have you, uh, reporting up to, um, you know, the, the cabinet secretaries. But a transition president, which Biden said he is, he's built a bench strength. And there are people that think, like, believe, and supported Harris when she was, you know, uh, running for the same office that Biden was. Um, so I think that may be that may be something to look at um, in 2024. So we'll talk about what a Trump 2.0 administration would mean for our industry specifically. But what does the hypothetical and and we know, you know, we, we've discussed who's going to be leading those cabinet positions. But what are the specific time, kind of regulatory and legislative things that we will see that we will face in oil and gas in a potential Biden administration? And I think the first thing you'll see, as I mentioned it earlier, is erasing all of the Trump regulations. So much as Trump tried to undo and reform Obama oil and gas and environmental regulations, Trump will do the same. I mean, I'm sorry, Biden will do the same to all of Trump's regulations. So uh, you're also seeing him say things like increased methane emission regulation on new and, and, and existing uh, oil and gas um, activity. So you're going to see a crunch down on that. You're likely going to see, while he says he's against, I mean, he, he, he says he's not going to stop fracking, right? That's what his campaign, and that's what all the debate in Pennsylvania is going back and forth on. But what he does says is no new federal leasing. And again, most of the leasing, and we remember when the shale revolution came around, when we first met, that was all on, on state or private lands. But it is a precedent. It starts moving things the different way. And with that, even if you're doing other leases, I, I can see um, permit requirements looking at everything around the life cycle. So uh, climate change related matters. Environmental justice is going to come out, and that's, that's a key theme. So what's happening with oil and gas development in local communities, and the, and the screw will be tightened there. Royalty rates, those are going to go up. Um, so you can see there's a, there, uh, call it um, death by a thousand cuts, but you can see a number of regulations that industry has tried to work with previous administrations on, tried to find some common ground. And this is, this is why it's, it's, will there be any moderates left on the Hill? Try to find some common ground. And you may not be able to do that now because the attention, the love will be given to clean energy. Because uh, his campaign pledge is 100% clean energy by 2050. So that will get priority. Oil and gas will be a second thought. I don't see how, in this transition period to that energy, how he can stop the central and Gulf, central and western Gulf development just because of the money, because of the jobs. I, I just don't see him stopping that. I can't see him raining down other than methane emissions and maybe uh, water discharge on the Permian because of the jobs and because of the dollars that that um, reigns true to local community. New Mexico without federal leasing is, it's, it's going to be, it, it'll be a dead city. I mean, there's opportunity. I'm not saying that for anybody in New Mexico, but- um, Their, but, their yeah. state budget is yeah. reliant upon oil and gas revenues yeah. and yeah. they know it. Yeah, and I mean, they're, they're going to have, they're going to have a, it'll be a trial. Um, so 
And there's been some analysis done. API has done a great analysis on what federal leasing and or a ban on hydraulic fracturing would mean. And this is the supply chain. You guys know better than everything else. The operator, the service company, and every item down uh, along that supply chain will be impacted if federal leasing is stopped. Uh, Biden's also said, you know, hell no to Anwar. So he'll look to make a, that a permanent exclusion. What he, what he may or may not do on the Trump OCS moratoria, he could make that permanent again. And if the Senate does flip, you know, you could see that happen quickly. Um, so again, those are, those are some things that would impact industry. And I, I didn't get to taxes yet, but let me mention that. Those are some things that would impact industry and also throw a bone to the progressives, right? The progressives dislike the fossil community almost as much as they dislike Trump, basically, in some cases. And I hope I'm not getting listeners upset when I'm saying that. <laughs> I, don't um, think, I think they're aware. Yeah, but, <laughs> um, but and then taxes is another one. You're going to see the corporate tax rate change. You're going to see um, it, this started under Obama, but he could never really get it done because of at the time the, uh, the Republicans held the House. But that was remove um, fossil fuel subsidies through agreements through the G20. He's already got that's a commitment to do that. Um, so and he's going to use the money from the patch to pay for everything else to avoid. He's also got to deal with a huge deficit due to covid. Plus, you've got to have other recovery packages that are coming out. So, and again, I'm, if it is Biden or if it's Trump, they both are going to have a very difficult 2021 because you're going to have to deal with everything that's hit us in 2020. Along those lines, Bob, uh, if in a potential Biden administration, obviously you have COVID out there, where do you think energy is on his uh, first hundred days? Is he going to go out with, with a lot of you know, energy focused regulations or is he going to be too focused on COVID? for that first 100 days to, to really touch energy, at, at least initially? Well, I, I think there will be some, some immediate executive orders to, to pull back regs or implement uh, new ones, which may uh, impact directly on the oil and gas industry. Um, but he's got to answer COVID. He's got to do that. And what's his plan? And again, people are just, uh, there's a hope that his plan will be better than a plan or a non-existent plan that the Trump administration had. So I think that's what he'll do. He's, there will be also um, on climate, he will step quickly on climate due to public interest, scientific scrutiny, um, and attention on that. And again, this is, this is not progressives, but this is, you know, this, the issue and concerns on climate run across party lines. But I think you're going to see a lot happen on climate early on. Paris climate trip back into it, you know, so that'll happen. That'll happen very quickly. That shouldn't impact industry, but the next tier of things will be disclosure, publicly traded companies. What are you doing to climate? Also, if you look through the Biden pledge, he's going to, he will form, I'll call it a, um, a, a, a corporate conduct malfeasance, you know, misconduct investigative group within EPA and Department of Justice to just go after and see which companies have done wrong to local communities and others um, and, and causing uh, climate-related impacts. So I think that's going to happen too. So I, I, I could see quite a bit coming that, that may not be directly focused at industry, 
but it's it 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 will get there to industry. And I think a lot of that too is coming regardless. No matter what happens in the White House, the environmental justice piece of this that that our companies are looking at for sure and realizing is a real thing, that's happening at the state level, certainly in the more progressively led states. Um, and, you know, Tim talks about this a lot, that it the, the train has left the station. That's happening. We need to start looking at it and getting on board and realizing, you know, what we need to be doing in our ESG disclosures, how we need to be talking about energy transition um, and simultaneously educating members of Congress that could potentially stop some of the worst things from happening to us. So, so you, you know, you talked about what we think could happen to the industry. So then what do we do? I, I know that we have this, this thought that if we educate those members that are in the middle, the ones that, you know, might be aligned with a potential Biden administration, but are also in energy intensive districts, how can we work with them? Who are they? How should we be working with them? The Petroleum Equipment and Services Association is the global trade association for the oilfield services sector and a proud sponsor of the Energy and Transition podcast. We support OFS in international trade, supply chain, health and safety, environmental policy, and a number of other areas. Our Energy Transition Committee is focused on sharing best practices in sustainability, collaboration with renewables technologies, and driving a smart energy transition. Please join us at PISA.org. No, you're, you're right. And, and, and you've heard me, both of you heard me say this. When you need friends, it's too late to make them. That's my favorite I know. Bob and if any line. of my old staff are listening, they're rolling their eyes right now. But, <laughs> but um, I, you're right. Uh, you can agree with anybody on 80% of the things. And if you're talking about jobs, economic well-being, mobility, and, and environmental protection, this industry can do that, particularly the service companies, innovation, technology, uh, thinking kind of outside the box. Your companies are already doing that. You're already providing the equipment for, I'll call it the energy futures, right? The, the, the renewables, the things that a potential Biden administration is going to look at. But sharing that information, knowing that you're part of the solution, you're not the cause. You're part of the solution. I think that's important and that that's going to be that'll be necessary. Absolutely. And I feel like, you know, we're trying to use the piece of megaphone to say, hey, look at OFS. Look at us. You know, we are part of the solution. You want to reduce emissions, reduce carbon footprint. We're developing that technology and shouldn't be cut out of the game. Um, but, you know, there's still there's still just those people out there that um, aren't seeing that. But we're going to keep shouting it from the no, rafters. And, and, you have, and it takes it takes a long time. And actually, this will give you a, a story. When I first came to this to the oil and gas industry, it was in 1991, and I'm sitting at a large conference. I'm in the back, and I'm looking, and all I see are what I have now, which are old bald heads of guys in front of me. That's changed, Leslie. It's changed through the good work of Thank a lot heavens. of good people. It it needs it needs to be more diverse, and that has happened. But even in that meeting. There was a discussion, and this was uh, one of the leaders from a major um, uh, producer, and this was all on offshore, stood up and he said, hey, we need to educate the public. We have them, you know, we need to capture their attention. We need to tell them how valuable this industry is, because at that time, beyond Texas and Louisiana, nobody really knew. You know, you know, and I grew up in Virginia. I always thought energy is well, it just flip the switch. The lights come on. I don't know where it's coming from. 
you know, but I mean, that's, that was talked about in 91 and you, you see fits and starts from industry, but I now with your leadership and so, and your collaboration with a number of the other energy trades, you're beginning to see the constant drumbeat and we can't stop that. And we just have to let people know. So congratulations to you, but it's, it's a long time coming. It maybe it really is. Well, thank you. But you're the Pied Piper in DC. So when we come up for our fly-in, we're going to have you in our parade of um, companies. So Tim, did you want to maybe transition us to your thoughts around the um, Supreme Court and what's happening right now? Yeah. Uh, well, obviously, you know, we're talking about all these potential scenarios. Um, one of the way, one of the, 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 the ways to, to prevent bad things from happening is obviously you go to, you go to the courts, uh, you know, potentially if, if you have a Biden presidency and you have a uh, Democrat control of the Senate. Uh, so the court, the court's very important. It, it is, is a fallback. What do you think about uh, president's new, new pick and where do you see the court going? Well, yeah. And I'll, I'll get to, I just wanted to mention though, Tim, one thing for, Everything about this president, one legacy will be, and a lot of this is due to Mitch McConnell, is he's now appointed 200 lifetime appointments to the bench. And, and, the, and this is an old number, but it was one in four uh, circuit court judges were Trump appointed. That, that, that does mean something. And it means something, because we were talking earlier about regulatory reform and, and lawyers from both sides, whether the NGOs or the industry are going to be at the court. I mean, we may be on different sides of the table if Biden wins. But, um, but again, that's, that, that is a legacy and that changes things at, at, at that level. Regarding the big discussion now on, the, on, the, on filling the Supreme Court vacancy since 18, I can't remember, 1869 or whatever, the court has always been nine justices. And I think uh, Franklin Roosevelt tried to change it to 15 when he was having some problems with his, you know, his new deal. Um, he was trying to change that. Um, but the last, uh, what, no, uh, Buttigieg, Pete Buttigieg talked about, it, let's make it 15, five Republicans, five Democrats, and five non-political. I'd love to hear that, you know, nomination hearing. Holy, well, anyway. Um, but and then Rubio tried to do a constitutional amendment back in 2019 saying, hey, uh, let's keep it at nine. Uh, but I do worry because you're seeing and you're hearing and actually um, Kamala Harris avoided that question when Pence put it to her about packing the court. And Biden has, has seemed to ignore it too yeah, in interviews. Yeah. And, and so it'll be, I mean, that may be one area. I mean, I mean, from a Trump perspective, if he can push COVID out of the way and have people focus on the court. You may win some, you may lose some, depending on your voter, but it gets the public focusing on something else. And that may be a question he might want to ask or, or inquire of his, uh, his um, competitor in Biden over their next debate. That would be an interesting one. It'd be telling, and it would change uh, the, the conversation in the press and everything else, depending on Biden's answer. It's it's a fascinating thing to consider. It would seem that that would be overreach that could cause pushback, um, you know, on the on the Democrats. But it would seem that Biden, you know, has been around long enough to not try to do that. But he he has dodged the question. So yeah, yeah. Uh, well, a, a good politician always does dodge a question. But I and I do think, and again, I am I'm not a scholar of the court. I'll tell you that. But um, there are a couple of things that I think this industry would be interested in. One, we talked about all the regulations; those are going to be coming back. 
And if it is a a a a, a conservative bent, does that help or not? I don't I don't I don't know because I don't think you can be as conservative as you want, but the environmental issues, statute interpretation, this that, and everything else, um, maybe maybe not on a couple of those challenges. But I do think there are a number of climate nuisance lawsuits. And those are state municipalities, localities going after against the, the, the big oil companies, namely seeking damages to what they're experiencing from climate. And the Supreme Court next year, I believe, will be looking at a, a case, not to, not to talk about the science of climate, but the, the jurisdiction and the venue where these should be decided. Should they be at the state level? Or should they be decided at the federal level? And I, it would probably be the federal level because, I mean, that just it just it makes sense to me that that's where they should be. But I think that'll be a, that'll be an interesting one. Otherwise, you're going to see um, more of these copycat. I'm calling them that, um, and and not knocking their arguments, but copycat uh, public nuisance lawsuits appear on related to climate. And then the the other one, and I think we had talked about this earlier in another conversation, is the um, Chevron deference, 1984, you know, uh, legal test in an, in a Supreme Court opinion, which basically gave deference to an agency for interpret interpreting in their regulatory process. Sometimes Congress, as we all know, can be fairly vague in what they're saying, so that could change too. And I, and I know. That has been an objective from a number within the business community and others for for a number of reasons. That could that could happen. So, I, I mean, it's that's the one great thing about every, this time that where we're living in. There's all of these uh, protect you know these possible scenarios. So it, it's a good drinking game. What's the possible scenario in the drinking game for the next debate that there's a fly that shows up <laughs> right. or something right. else? I mean, we are supposed to be like full-time practitioners of public uh, policy. We're watching the debate and our remember the Twitter sphere is blowing up. Uh, We're texting each other. It's all in the fly. Oh, yeah. No, it's it's too funny. I mean, what else could happen? It's too like... Funny. Yeah, because I, I, if you ask anybody what either... You know what either of them were saying when oh, the flight. No one's no. It's all just focused. We're just staring right at the, the fly. fly. Yeah. So, I mean, it tells you it tells you how in tune the public is. Yeah. Speaking of scenarios, Bob, I have to ask you this. Let's say the president's reelected, he ekes it by first hundred days of Trump's second term. Where 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 do you think is is coming down the pike there? In that scenario, is the Senate Democrat or Republican? Let's say the the Senate stays Republican. Then Trump. 2.0 and his officials will be every day making a pilgrimage to the House Oversight and Investigative Committees to defend Trump 1.0. And I, I can see that happening again. And if Trump wins, the Democratic Party is in disarray. I was going to use another word there, but they, but they are in, in and there'll be finger pointing blame game. And actually, if Trump wins, I would anticipate the old guard gets booted. And then you see the, the younger team that we were talking about, you know, uh, Ryan and others that were trying to run against Pelosi way back when they start flexing their muscle, they start moving um, and friction that we had talked about that Biden is trying to unify if he wins. But that friction would, oops, sorry, would rip apart 
um, the Democrats if Trump wins. And he would love it and he would tweet about it and everything else. But I think the other thing Trump will do is as far as, I mean, he's got to do an economic, I mean, a economic COVID recovery. I would think much the same that Biden would do. Trump would try to polish off. We remember he was talking about an infrastructure bill, um, but it, we, it never really gelled, basically. But I could, I could see he and his team trying to do that because that's jobs, that's development, it's American products. All of, and so I could see Trump trying to do something on, on infrastructure. Um, I, and, and again, it's it, the one thing about President Trump, it, it's a disruptive administration, and I see that in a good term, just like shale gas development was disruptive and it changed things. So I've, I've tried to give up predicting what Trump will do. There's a couple of things where you, you like, like I just mentioned, where I think he would do it. Um, but, uh, a lot of the things you're going to see the same play, like his, 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 um, the China issue and tariffs and protecting American business and American manufacturing, you'll still see that still play out. Do you think he doubles down on, on China tariffs? Uh, well, yeah. I mean, given, given, you know, I mean, TikTok and this, that and everything else and Hawaii, and I mean, you're going to see you're going to see more of that come out. But, but, at this, but at the same time, he can attack those, but what's he going to do to, to encourage growth and investment here in competing U.S. technologies? That's the point, you know, is what what then happens, because that has been so incredibly disruptive to our global supply chain in this industry. Um, you see, you know, more, I guess, at this point, moving to Mexico, you know, what do you what do you have to say right now about USMCA? Does that stick around? Like, what does that look like? Yeah, I, get, I, I think I, th I think it would. I think it would. It's and, and but again, it's still it, it, there are some companies that are they think they got what they needed, but with you dealing with AMLO down there, there are problems for this industry with AMLO, right? Or, or, or uh, I'm, I'm not in the industry anymore, but there's problems with your industry. <laughs> You're always yeah, yeah, part no, of this no, industry, no, Bob. But I, I We're mean, not ever letting you go. Yeah, and, and, about, and, and it's, it's, it's the same uncertainty and disruption, right? And, and a little bit of political chaos. But I, I think the tariffs stay. The, and you guys are familiar um, for what you're doing with the piece of membership. But, you know, the, the constant treadmill talking and try, looking at waivers, looking at opportunities, how long are they in place? Can you keep them in place? And that, again, the supply chain impacts on that are, can be huge. They are huge. We have, and we hadn't even mentioned it on the podcast before, but I'm going to plug us. Um, you know, we have a member company that came to us and said, look, the, the product exclusion that you filed on our behalf saved us. 15, 20 million dollars on a specific um, artificial lift component. So that's going to cover our dues for the next couple of years. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. We're like, that's yeah, fantastic, yeah, you know. Yeah. But that's, I mean, that, that's a reason why you get involved in trade associations. Right. No, exactly. Exactly. I mean, it's in trade associations and also what you talked about earlier is constantly going, you, you don't have to go up and ask for things. You just say, hey, I want to let you know about a challenge. We're trying to deal with it, but I may be back to ask for help because, and, Having that constant relate, well, you're doing it, Tim. Having that constant outreach and discussion because when you need friends, it's too late to make them. <laughs> exactly, so, yeah. Bob. Along those lines, uh, 
you know, I think there's a general agreement that, you know, whatever happens federally on the federal elections, whatever happens at a lot of these state levels, the headwinds our industry is facing are, are coming at us probably, you know, either way. One of the things we need to do is we need to tell our story better. We need to message better. We need to have better strategic communications. It's obviously a, a, something you focused quite a bit on. How do you think we can do as an industry better on that? Again, it's the, the drumbeat is important. Um, your innovators your manufacturers, um, the technology that you deliver. I think that is a great story. I mean, the, the American public likes a good tech story. And I'm not, I'm not talking Facebook and stuff. I'm talking about building, manufacturing, um, and seeing it at work. That, that, that resonates. Um, I think also you're doing great work with third parties, right? And you're talking to other groups. I mean, your trade association and others are talking to labor. How can we deal with STEM education? How we can grow? And it, and now, it, again, when we were talking earlier about this integration, when you look at um, at, at, at digital and high and high t high computing, that tech world, when you talk about the real nuts and bolts and steelwork that is done, and you're seeing how all of that is coming together and delivering products, that I think is a great story, and it just needs to be told. It's a whole new way of telling stories. That's the other problem. It's again, when I was the guy with hair looking at bald heads in that, in that audience, um, this was, hell, this was before Blackberries or anything else. Um, but now everybody is reading on the cell phone. Everybody's looking at Instagram and finding that following, um, it, it, um, getting them engaged and keeping them engaged and, and educating them. I think that it's and and, and I'll, this is the only plug I'll say for the company I'm working with too. Some we've got some great talent that's looking at, at digital um, analysis and insight on what works, what doesn't, how people are thinking, where they're going. So call me at FTI if you're interested. But uh, <laughs> you no, get that plug in uh, there. no, no, but uh, but um, but I, I'm with you, Tim. It, it's the the avenues continue to change, um, the, and the attitudes continue to change and. You've always got to try to stay one step ahead of that. And I really, I, again, I applaud everything Peace is doing because you guys are there. Um, you guys are there. I appreciate you saying that. So speaking of the new normal and FTI, you know, and I know y'all have come out and, and talked a lot about COVID and the environment and how, how we see this resolving. I mean, when does the new normal show up? And what's been your favorite pandemic skill that you've learned? I have some I can share and some I can't share. Well, I know. Well, so. that's, uh, my daughter, again, I have no hair, but my daughter gives me a nice haircut. I just want to point that out. Um, and, and, and Leslie, I, the new normal is certainly going to be a hell of a lot different from the old normal. We're never you going know, back I, to I, the way we were, are I can't, we? I can't imagine. It's um, people are, are, well, everybody's going to Amazon buying a nice office chair, you know, rather than sitting on a dining room chair, you know, for home. But um, working from home. Connecting through Zoom, Meeting Place. What's yours? Digital. Ours is Ring Central, oh, man. Ring Central, yeah. <laughs> that thing Ring gets, Central. It gets hated on all the time. Yeah. There's a reason why we but use it. But I mean, it. It's these new tools and resources that you have, I'll be honest, um, in my world, talking to my team, I, I saw more of them in the first couple of months than I had seen you know, over the past six. It just visiting, con it's, but it's very, very different um, with... What it used to be, you would shoe leather up on Capitol Hill or to the administration, and a lot of it are cold calls or you're talking and you're asking, 
the receptionist, what's going on? You're running into people in the hallway. You're doing all yes, that. Yes, that's that, all that doesn't, that doesn't happen now anymore. And it's, again, staffers and members, particularly now, uh, are, very, are, are very good about making time and talking with you on, on the, the Zoom call, if you will. But there, there's something, and again, I'm, an, I'm, I'm the old soul, but there's something very different from being able to sit and talk, shake hands, share a Diet Coke with one of my favorite ranking members on the Ways and Means Committee, you know, doing things that way, uh, which that may change. I hope it doesn't, but that may change. It will. Seeing a senator's hideaway office in the Capitol, having yeah, some bean soup yeah, in yeah, the Senate no, dining room. Exactly. Th- those things you can't. Yeah. We miss those things, you know. There's only so much you can do virtually. There's there's a lot of politics uh, that that's missing right now. I mean, and it's true when when you, we've all been there when you're in a room with staff and they're asking you to come in to talk about a particular issue, concern, whatever it's going to be. There's something that you can get from that whole table, body language. You know, everybody looking at their BlackBerry on something else or, or I'm sorry, iPhone on something else. I'm talking old. But I, again, you do you do miss that. You do. You do. Or I miss that. You know, BlackBerry was the technology of choice when I was in D- D.C., obviously. I mean, the BlackBerry is like a Jeep. I mean, it keeps on ticking. You can do anything. That that keyboard, I loved that BlackBerry. I, I, I had one of the last, on Capitol Hill, one of the last working BlackBerries. They actually emailed me and said, sir, <laughs> we're turning the system off. You, no, have, no, you no. have to replace your BlackBerry. <laughs> it was just, dear Tim. <laughs> yeah, oh, uh-oh. my gosh. No, but it, it's, it, and more changes are coming, too. I, and I hope, and knock on wood, regarding, regarding the new normal, I hope. That can we look at this as we all are family and we're taking care of each other. We're staying six feet apart. We're wearing a mask. We're washing our hands. You know, we're social distancing. But there is going to be there will be a challenge when we look to open up restaurants, bars, things like that. Or, Or it's tough to watch a football game and there's not that many people in the stadium or a couple of them, nobody. And uh, I don't like when Fox turns on the noise. I'd rather hear. I the, really yeah. don't like it when I see the cardboard cutouts of the people on the baseball games. That's creepy. But I do want to say one thing. I'm gonna, I teed you, brought, you up. I know it. you teed me up about this, <laughs> but I know your Astros are fighting to stay alive. Um, and I wish you guys well. But I would like everybody, <laughs> everybody listening today, to know that last year's World Series was wonderful. Go Nats, baby. Go Nats. <laughs> Uh, Jonathan, we're going to delete that part. <laughs> we'll mark no, that. Yeah, no. <laughs> well, Bob, thank you so much. Your knowledge and your experience in D.C. and in this industry is unmatched. Um, and we appreciate being able to come to you with Tim and I come to you constantly for guidance on things. Um, and we appreciate everything that you do for PISA that you still do, even though you're not a part of us anymore. But thanks so much for making the trip um, and for the discussion. For everyone, um, that wraps up the special election edition of the Energy and Transition podcast. Thanks to my co-host, Tim Tarpley, Vice President Government Affairs at PISA. Um, and we're signing off now from the Fletcher Azul studio in Houston. Please subscribe on your favorite podcast channel. Thanks so much. 
Thanks for joining us on another great episode of the Energy and Transition podcast. Please make sure you subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review. It's the best way to support the podcast and to grow our community. Also, if you want to reach out to us, please go to our website at energyandtransition.com and we'll catch you in the next episode.